All right, if you guys would please stand. We're going to read from Genesis chapter 42 today, starting with verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested, by the life of Pharaoh, You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined while you, where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your, grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, "In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul." When he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. 
And at this, their hearts failed them, and they returned. They turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? So, word of God, you may be seated. This series on the founders of the Jewish people and the patriarchs covers three-fourths of the book of Genesis. We've been making our way chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we are almost at the crescendo of the book of the beginnings. Every week I think about how if you're coming into this at a certain point, you may not know unless you are very well acquainted with the book of Genesis. So I have to do a recap, kind of like 90s TV shows, or they'd be like previously on whatever show you're watching. So previously on Patriarchs, I'm just going to go straight to somebody else who summarized these events, and that is in the book of Psalms, Psalms 105, verse 16 through 22. When he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt by, with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron until he had... Until he had said, come to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him. The ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his elders wisdom. The psalmist kind of gives us the, the uh, background story. He gives us, he lifts up the veil of what has been going on here in the book of Genesis. See, there's a way we can look in this and we can almost like take God out of the picture and make us think that this is human wisdom or making best of a bad situation. But the psalmist, writing by the inspiration of Holy Scripture, there's a couple things he says here. One, he says that God sends the famine. He. He sends the famine. I know that grinds against certain people's idea that God is somehow not in control of this world, but he absolutely is. And then we see, as we've been reading along, it's Joseph's brothers who betrayed him, sold him into slavery, yet it says, God, he sent him to Egypt. He sent him to Egypt. The recap, in this recap, what I want to point out is God is the one who is the mover of these events. He's the one who sends Joseph ahead. This was Joseph's understanding, too, that God was in control of his life. His brothers asked this question, what is this? God has done. Joseph already knows what God is doing here. God is disciplining those he considers his children. And when we talk about children, we talk about family. We look at this family right here of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the founders of the Jewish people. And essentially what Genesis is, is a story about a family, a dysfunctional family. We look at Joseph, that person we're talking about here, the guy who's in control of Egypt, you know, I saw, um, I saw this uh, trailer for a movie called 12 Years a Slave about a free man who's kidnapped and sold into slavery. Joseph's story would have been 13 years a slave. He was a slave for 13 years thanks to his brothers. It's been seven years of plenty according to the word of the Lord that God had given to Pharaoh but interpreted by Joseph. It is 20 years since last he saw his family. His family is a broken family, but long before Joseph, long before what happened with him and his brothers, we look at Abraham, who not once but twice tells people that his wife is his sister. 
We see the dysfunction between him and then his nephew Lot. And we've been going through this story through all these people who are the male founders of the Jewish people. And we see all their warts. We see all their problems. We see all their troubles. And it's a very dysfunctional family. Um, In the past, I said, you know, they make the Connors look like the Brady Bunch. But like half of you will get that reference and that's cool. Because of the fall, in many ways, all families are broken homes in the sense that all members in a family are fallen people living in a fallen world. And we hurt one another. We often don't even mean to, and sometimes we do mean to, and nobody can hurt you like a family member can hurt you. The hurt is deep. Joseph's family took what I just said about how all families are broken. They saw it as a challenge to be number one in that category. I don't just mean his brothers who sold him into slavery um, when they decided against plan A, which was to kill him, but also his father and his father's father's fathers. It's a lot of dysfunction. And at the end of the book of beginnings, it's about the restoration of a family. This is ultimately what Genesis is about, restoring this dysfunctional family. Why are they dysfunctional? Why are nations, why are states, why are towns, why are families, why are individuals separate from one another? Sin. Abraham Lincoln, he had thought that very thing when he saw his nation in civil war in his second inaugural address. He says, and I quote, Yet if God wills that it will continue, speaking of the civil war, until all the wealth piled by the bondsmen, bondsmen 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether." Sin separates families, it separates individuals, it separates towns and nations. But really, ultimately, I'm not talking even so much about Jacob and his 12 sons, but I am talking about a much wider picture. I'm talking about God's family. That's what Genesis is about, restoring God's family. So all the scripture is about, restoring God's family. Genesis doesn't start with Abraham, it starts with God. And then God makes Adam, and he makes Adam and Eve in his own image. Why are they created? Why did he create them? To be in relationship with him. And Matthew and Luke include two sections of scripture that I think people find to be the most boring parts of the scripture, and it's the genealogy. Oftentimes we just skip over those, and we said we read them anyway, and we make our check mark in our year-end Bible. And we miss a lot in there. So in, in Matthew, it's from Joseph's line. And it, got, it, goes from, um, it goes from, I think, David back to Joseph. And then in, um, and then in Luke, it goes, from, it goes the other way around from Mary all the way to Adam. And it's that part where so-and-so begat so-and-so, and you're already starting to fall asleep. But anyway, um, if you pay attention and then you get to the very end of it, you get to Adam. Who's Adam's mother and father? Well, no one, right? Because God formed him out of the dust of the earth. He breathed on him. He became a living soul. So it says, Adam, the son of God. But we know what happened with Adam, right? God had made Adam for his pleasure. He had made Adam to be in relationship with him. And then in Luke, it even says, he is the son of God. We know what happens. He knows the law of God and he disobeys the law of God. He eats from the fruit of the tree of the, of the knowledge of good and evil. 
and he is separated from God. When God comes to see him in the morning to walk with him, he's nowhere to be found. And he asks, where are you at? And he's like, I didn't want you to see me because I was naked. And the Lord asks him, he says, who told you you were naked? Those are some of the most chilling words in all of human history. Who told you? And you realize how much was lost in that moment of fellowship with God. I, I know people who have an outrageous amount of money and they're coming to the end of their life and they're wondering, what is it all for? All the worldly pleasure was a drop. It was nothing. But to walk with God, to know him, Adam disobeys God and because of his sin, it, there's a separation between God and the first Adam. So what needs to happen is a second Adam will come who is sent by his father into a world of sin, into a world of famine, he, is, he humbles himself to the very nature of a slave and is numbered among the transgressors. He humbles himself to death, even death on the cross. And he, the one who had died comes back. And that is the second Adam, Jesus Christ. And God has given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These 12 brothers, once again, these are the children of Jacob, who's also known as Israel. We talk about the 12 tribes of Israel. We're talking about them, the tribes they founded. And as we go through them, we, we see a lot of their warts. Like two of them use the symbol of the covenant of God to kill the neighbors. We see other ones like Reuben, who has an affair with his father's concubine. We see other, well, all 10 of them, besides Benjamin, are in this plot to sell their brother into slavery and tell their very father that he was ripped apart by a wild animal. So what I want to say in this is that while we know these things, we need to understand that they're not reprobates. Now, that's a word in the English that's not really used at all anymore. I can't tell you the last time I heard somebody say reprobate. It's a word that actually kind of changed meaning, and now it's a word that really isn't even used. So, I, I mean, so I think it's funny about people who really feel like, you know, the King James Version of the Bible is the only version you should read is because you need a translator for the King James, and that's how quickly English moves. So reprobate is a word we used to use, and really where it comes from, what it, what it, what it doesn't really mean anything anymore because people don't use it. And when people actually did use it, what they meant is somebody that was really bad. But what it really means is not only somebody who is bad, but who has absolutely no hope. And there's two, there's two camps in theology, in Christian theology, when it, comes to, uh, when it comes to God's foreknowledge and predestination. So one side would see that um, God has no intention of saving these individuals, so they're destined for hell. And then the other side would say, well, God sees in his foreknowledge that they will never accept him, so they're also destined for hell. So we have this word reprobate. And what I want to say about these men is that they're not reprobates. These are men that God wants to restore, to forgive, and that what we see in here is not punishment, but discipline. Their uncle Esau was a reprobate, as far as we can really tell, because he is godless. He seeks, even though he knows things are going wrong, he seeks it with tears, but he can't find repentance. That is not the same with these. And I say that this is a problem because we can have this arrogant attitude reading about these people in the Bible because we get to hear their sins and our sins haven't been written down. Isn't that kind of nice? Nobody is like knowing your deep, dark secrets and writing them down for you. 
remember I worked at this treatment facility, and um, one of our assistant director wanted us to have a bit more empathy for the, our clients who are teenagers. And so we're, all, we're having this staff meeting, and she tells us, okay, write down a piece of paper. This is just for you. Nobody will see it. I, I swear, nobody will see it. Write down your deepest, darkest secret that you'd be so embarrassed for everybody to hear. And we're like, you know, nobody wants to do it. And she makes us do it, so we do it. And then she says, all right, now pass him to the right. And like, you could hear people gasping. And she's like, no, no, don't. But I want you to know, all of our clients, you know the paper that should be passed to the right about them, but they don't know about you. So maybe have some, some, some consideration about this. So we know... We know the, the deep, dark secrets of them, but we also know the God who forgives sinners. They're not reprobates, and what we see in their life is, is not punishment, but it is discipline or discipleship. They ask, they ask a question in verse 28, which is what Becca finished with. What is this that God has done? They're referring to the money back in their packs, but they might as well have asked that about their whole lives because the answer is the same. This is what God has done. This is what God is doing in their life, in your life. His intention is to forgive, to reconcile, and to give a clean conscience. If I was to summarize that in one verse from the Bible, it would be from 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The discipline of the Lord may feel like punishment, but ultimately, it's for our highest good. God disciplines us even as he saves us. This discipleship gives us the fruit of the Spirit and freedom from a guilty conscience. When we think of the discipline of the Lord, we tend to think of a punishing, punishing a child, but that is not what it is. It is more of a training in righteousness. A person can be disciplined and still do things right, but they are growing in whatever discipline that they are attempting to be, to grow, to be grown in them. When I worked at the treatment facility that I talked about, we were trying to get away from simply trying to control the residents' behavior. They were all teenagers, and our thing, they were all teenage boys, so best of luck there, right? I remember sometimes I'd, be, I'd talk about, he's like, I was like, I don't mind when things go crazy as long as we're under control. And the, the other staff member started laughing in my face. He's like, we're never in control. <laughs> so we were, we, what we we're supposed to be doing there was not just punishing kids for bad behavior. No, we were supposed to be trying to teach them something called life therapy. And, and the theory of it was that so they would think through their actions. And so they wouldn't just behave here, but they'd be productive members of society. We didn't want them just behaving themselves while out the center, that they would be responsible members of society. The discipline of the Lord is, has one aim in our life, is to conform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, that is what the Holy Spirit looks to do in you. He will use discipline to do it. As we see the discipline of the Lord in these 12 brothers, we see three types of discipline God uses. And he uses sin in three different ways. The reformers said that God uses sin sinlessly. He doesn't cause anyone to sin, but he uses sin in order to refine his children. He uses one, the sinful world. Two, the sins of others. And three, our sins. Truly, he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Hey, any of my Bible quiz kids know where that's found? It's in Romans, so... All right, Romans 8.28. Um, 
The word that we use there, work together, is two words in the English, but it's one word in the Greek. It is then further Latinized and becomes our word in, our, our word in the English, synthesize, um, no, synergy, sorry, synergy, in which you take two things, to, you put them together, and they're more than the sum of their parts. So for instance, you can take sodium, and if you eat sodium, you will die. If you eat, if you eat it in its raw form, and you could take chloride, and that takes a noxious chemical, which would kill you. You put these two things together, and you get table salt. There's a synergy between those two things that are, hard, that are hazardous for you on their own, but put together, they're good for you. God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Let's look at this first one right here. The sin, the, um, God uses this sinful world. Now, probably better would be to say this fallen world. Although God does use the culture of sin to refine his children as they resist temptation, I am referring to this being a fallen world in which famines, droughts, and all kinds of things happen. They test us in ways other things don't. And as we bear up under them, the fruit of the Spirit is produced in our life. In our scripture, scripture today, God is using a famine to bring this family together. And that might seem, okay, that seems a bit extreme because a famine is a very difficult thing. It's a very harsh thing. I mean, they're starving to death by the time they get to Egypt. Yet God knows that there are more important things than the food we put in our stomach. In fact, that's what Jesus said to Satan himself. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that cometh from the mouth of God. There are other examples in the, that God uses this sinful world to cause people to repent. And directly or indirectly, when he, when he causes them or allows them to be caused. For instance, we have 2 Chronicles 7.14. We know this verse, every election season we see this, but if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then I'll hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sins and heal their land. There's a verse before that, that somehow always gets submitted. Because God says, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Or how about, so that would be when God is causing those things to happen to draw his people back to repentance. And remind you, I would remind you that it says, if my people who are called by my name, so that is not sinners out in the world, that's not punishment, that is discipline for God's people. But there are other times where just living in this fallen world, we get caught up just basically in the, in the, the systems of this world, the, um, the weather systems of this world. Like Paul the Apostle, when he is boasting of his sufferings in 2 Corinthians chapter 25, he says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times. Oh, once I was stoned. So those ones right there, those are persecution from sinful people. And here's this one. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day, I was adrift at sea. That is the fallen world we live in. You go out on the open sea, you face, you, you, you run the risk of being shipwrecked. Um, that's, by the way, that's, that's very terrifying to me because I'm not a good swimmer. I know I'm not lasting long on the open sea. Not a day and a night, I'll tell you that much. A few weeks ago, we went to Hawaii, and I could either, um, I could, I wanted to hang out with sharks, and I could either free swim with sharks, or I could go in a cage, and I decided the cage, because I wasn't really afraid of the sharks, I was more afraid of the open ocean, 
So, yes, sometimes, and it's not even directed. And then we have Jesus' instruction anytime we see any kind of a tragedy, whether it's man-made or, or natural circumstances. In Luke chapter 13, there are people who come to Jesus, and they want to know about these Galileans whose blood is mixed with their sacrifice. It was a very shameful way to die. And Jesus confronts them. He says, do you think there are worse sinners than all the rest? And then he says, then he gives an example of something that wouldn't be directed as persecution. He says, or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? And he gives the same reason for all of these things. Repent or you too will perish. Every time we see any kind of tragedy, that should be our attitude. It's like, okay, let me take stock of myself. God, is there any unclean thing in me? I need to bring that to the surface. So we start in verse 1 here. When Jacob learned there was, a, there, was, there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? In the first year of the famine, and already Jacob and his family are starving. They saved nothing in those times of plenty, and they have nothing in their times of need. This is something I talked about last week, that in our life, if we don't save something in the times of plenty, we won't have anything in our times of need. And it's using that metaphorically, that if we do not trust God in the times of plenty, we won't trust him in our times of need, and we'll find ourselves with nothing to rely back on. I was thinking about this morning as I was preaching to the cats, that's what I do before service, and uh, <laughs> that's an inside joke. Anyway, I, 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 I practice and I have a command performance before the Lord, my cats happen to be around. Anyway, and I was thinking about this, I was trying to give a good illustration for this, and I can't think of anything better than when I see a married couple run into problems in their life. And there's so many ways married couples can run into problems. And you start seeing what they've built up in the times of plenty to see if they can sustain them in the times of want. So everybody experienced trouble. I just talked about the people who hurt us the worst, our family members. The person, can hurt, the person who can hurt you the absolute worst is the person you said I do to. So what do you see? Everybody, everybody runs into these times of trouble. It's what they built up into those times of plenty. And I, I have seen people who didn't build up anything. So the times of trouble are very small. Like the person has maybe a gambling addiction and the marriage is over. And I've seen other ones where it is bad. It is so bad bad. It gives me nightmares. And supernaturally, they endure because they built up so much in that time of plenty. You're not married here today. Explain it like this. If you do not give God the glory in the times of plenty, you will resent him in the times of want. These 10 right here, why are they looking at one another? It's a lot like when there's an issue in a company or in a family or whatever, is that, you know, you, you start looking around the elephant in the room, right? These 10 have a secret. These 10 believe they had murdered their brother by sending him to Egypt. So when they hear this word Egypt, Sinclair Ferguson called it a trauma word. We would call it maybe a trigger word today. That's their trigger word, Egypt. They hear Egypt and they start looking around. They're like, starving to death doesn't sound so bad. Because last they heard about Egypt is when they were sending their brother to slavery in Egypt. And their guilt is so much for them. Hey, this is a reminder of the shared sin. So terrible, it's best left unsaid. They lowered their brothers in a pit. They took him out and sold him into slavery. But for the past 20 years, they never left that pit. Their oldest brother, Reuben, he had went along with it. But in his heart, he's like, okay, I got to go get some rope. And I got to go save Joseph. And here's my little bit of editorializing in that. 
Because I wonder what was in his heart. I bet in his heart he was thinking, if I don't get him out of that pit, I'll never leave that pit. And they took him out of that pit. They sold him into slavery. But they've all been in that pit for 20 years of guilt and grief. And I don't know whether it was worldly sorrow. Maybe it was worldly sorrow that doesn't lead to repentance. It's just feeling bad for what you did because they never come clean to their dad. I don't know if it was maybe godly sorrow because it is producing in them a repentance, a godly repentance too. But for 20 years, they've been living in a pit of guilt Dear one, today are you living in a pit of guilt? Maybe it's a lot longer than 20 years. Maybe it's a lot shorter. God doesn't want you in that pit. We look at this famine. We look at these things coming. You know what this is? This is God's loving hand on these 10 because he doesn't want them in the pit any longer. And he'll use a famine to heal this family. So in verses 2 through 4, these 10 set off for Egypt. Their father wants to know why they're looking around. Get to work, boys. So they head out for Egypt. They don't have food, but they do have money. Their youngest brother, Benjamin, or Benny as I like to call him, he has to stay home. I, feel, I always feel a lot of like sympathy for Benjamin because their father is kind of a helicopter father. And his favorite wife, and that's a weird thing to say, right? He had four wives, two real wives, two concubines. And his favorite was Rachel. She had two sons. One was Joseph, who's in Egypt. And the other one is Benjamin, who's at home. And he does not want to let Benny out of his sight. That's the thing. When good things become ultimate things in our life, we crush them under the pressure of wanting, needing them to fill the empty spots in us. Jacob, their father, believed that Joseph, who's in Egypt, the governor of that land, he believes he's dead his sons had shown him the coat of many colors ripped to shred. So now these 10 go out without their youngest brother, and they are in the pit of guilt as they go out to the land they sent their brothers to. And this is almost like the Agatha Christie novel, And Then There Were None, which I'm going to spoil for you, even though it's been out longer than any of us have been alive. But in, in the book, and then there were none, this secret guy invites eight people to his island, and each one had wronged him in some way, and he then kills them. I'm sorry, I'm, I am spoiling the whole thing for you, sorry. And, and I'm going to spoil it even worse. He kills himself so that they don't get wise to who's, who's killing them because he has this thing against them. It's kind of the opposite of that in which Joseph, who's been wrong, will show mercy and grace to those who have wronged him. Professor Michael Stanton says, we often think we, um, what we often think are hardships or inconveniences are God's way of accomplishing good in our lives. In verse 5, they're off to Egypt with the rest of Canaan here. It seems that everyone in this whole land, in the land as far as um, those who are these, the biblical writer is in, is in a grip of a very severe famine. And all are coming to Egypt because Egypt has grain for seven years of plenty. They've set aside that thanks to the careful administration of Joseph. Joseph is actually there in, in the, the city in which the Canaanites are coming to in order to buy grain. Which is very interesting. I don't know why he's there. I know nobody can lift hand or foot without him. But I also know Egypt is a very large place. But I wonder if he asks, okay, where are the Canaanites going to come to? I want to be there because maybe I'm going to see somebody I know. It's been 20 years for Joseph, 13 years as a slave, 
13 years of plenty, that's 20 years since last he saw a familiar face. And in verse 6, and I might end here. Well, I'm not even a third of the way done, but that's okay. Um, it says, now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. For a second, I was going to name this, this sermon right here, You Make My Dreams Come True. Those of you who like 80s music, I can, I, can see your, I can hear your laugh. This dream is not the way that anybody would have ever guessed. His brother, so this whole, this whole thing starts when Joseph, who's 17, he has two dreams, one after another. His first dream, him and his brother are gathering the wheat. They have their sheaves of wheat, so that's wheat that's bound together. And their seeds bow down to his sheaf of wheat. By this time, he's already been elevated above them, and they figure this is just like dad and uncle Esau, is that the younger, the older are going to serve the younger. So they hate him because of their dream. That's what they say. That's what the scripture says. They hated him because of his dream. And the second dream they, he had, it was, it, was, it was even worse. They were the stars, and they were bowing down to him. And when their brother comes comes to check up on them, they said, let's kill him and then see what happens to his dreams. When it comes to dreams, whether metaphorical or literal, that God gives, the, the accomplishment of it is very different than what we ever could think of. Sometimes it's like this, where we have a lot of fear associated with it. You know what those dreams were? They were given to Joseph, but they were a message for his brothers salvation. Salvation. When Jesus Christ came, all the prophets prophesied of him. He accomplished what the prophets had said, but because the Pharisees and the Sadducees could see the people coming to him, they wanted him dead. And that is what we often do. The means of salvation that God is giving us, we despise because we can't understand, because we don't want to trust our God and Father. Pastor I know has said that we are, we are hesitant to pray thy will be done because we are secretly suspicious of the Father's intentions toward us. Joseph's ten brothers did not know the mercy of God. They did not know the mercy of God. They've been living in guilt for 20 years. They had no idea when this dream came true, they would not be upset. They would not be angry. They would not be furious. They would be relieved. So they come and they bow down. They bow their faces to the ground. Hopefully you can see me over here. This is far more than custom dictates. Custom of the time. That, 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 it's almost kind of an outrageous thing. But that's how relieved they were to find food in a time of famine. I imagine years after all of these events, they, they think to themselves, if I could have just understood, if I could have just, let me, let me rephrase, if I would have just trusted my God, that he really does work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If I could have understood what Joseph understood, that you meant for evil, God meant for the good of what is being done, the saving of many, how much different things would have gone, how much time we were wasted. So now we know how God makes Joseph's dreams come true. 
he uses a famine. A famine is a result of the sin of Adam. One of the things that the Lord tells Adam is that from the land he will sweat and out of the pain he will fill his stomach. A famine in the land, this is God's agent to discipline his sons, to disciple them. It has drawn them together in this time. And what will eventually happen is a restoration of their family. For that, you'll need to come back the next few weeks. Here's my question. Is God disciplining you? We haven't even gotten to the two other areas. And it was just really sad for me because I was writing this down over at the feed mill. And I'm so thankful the feed mill lets you go upstairs because there was nobody around. And I almost started breaking down when I got to one part of it because of how good God is. How he sees us before we see him. So I don't, I don't, I'm not going to get that, to the, that today. But I want to encourage you with this. Is a lot of times we see the hardships in life and we think, we think God is punishing us. But when really he's doing it for our good. Because often what we get pushed to is a transactional view of God, which is, I do good things and he owes me good things. That is not the truth. You've never done anything good apart from him. And Isaiah talks about our righteous deeds, our filthy rags before God. And we understand this and we, we nod and we're like, thank you, pra- praise the Lord, preach preacher. But then something bad happens in our life. And a lot of us, we have the same reaction. Sometimes I have this reaction. God, why are you doing this? I have the reaction that Joseph's brothers have. What is this that God has done? And God is like, and and God is saying back to us to forgive, to restore, and to cleanse from a guilty conscience. We haven't even gotten to that part yet. I'm excited to get to it. Because they've had 20 years of a guilty conscience. They believe this is in direct result punishment for what they did to their brother, when instead it is God discipling them. It is God looking towards their highest good as he is with Joseph this past 20 years. And for your past, and some of you guys are not 20 years old, some of you are like 12, 11, I don't know what the youngest, I guess newborn, um, All the path of our life, everything in our life, God works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So don't lose heart. Worship team, you can come up at this time. Do not lose heart. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 through 8, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured, endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you do not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son he receives. Don't lose heart. Rejoice that you are a legitimate son and daughter of the living God. And hope, hope that God will work this out, even this, to his good, to our good and his glory. Worship team, would you lead us in our final song? Thank you.
I know this one point right here is so powerful. Of realizing how God is forming us into the image of his son, just using the things of this fallen world to refine us as fire. In the book of Job, Job says, I went to this place and God wasn't there. I went here to the east, God wasn't there. I went to the north, God wasn't there. I heard he was working the south. I went to the south, he wasn't there. But God knows where I go. And when he is done, I will be refined as fire. I will be refined as gold. I pray that you do not lose heart during times of trial. I pray that you will, I pray that you will rejoice that you are a legitimate son and daughter of the living God and that your hope that he will work even this together for his good, for your good and his glory. I am excited for next week to talk about how to, get a, how to have cleansing from a guilty conscience. How some people will tell me, Pastor, I know that God has forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. That that is not humble. And that is, that is a message from the devil himself. To steal all your joy, to steal all your peace, when God has so much more for you. But for today, let us meditate on our hearts on this. That God is disciplining us. What is God how is God shaping us in those times of trial? And if it's your times of triumph and rejoicing, I pray that you would build in this time what should sustain you when times are going bad. That your dependence on the Lord when times are good would flow into those times and times of suffering.